Welcome back, podcast listeners, episode 69, and part of our mini-series of um, bringing in people to really highlight the SME area and people who can help um, and people that we work closely with. So today uh, on the line, we have Christian Yazbek from Hamilton Blackstone Lawyers. Now, before I get into a bit about Christian, um, I, I want to touch on his experience and background. Um, Christian is an industry-leading financial services lawyer with 15 years experience. Uh, Christian is nationally accredited mediator and mentor in the Law Society Mentoring Program. Uh, he holds honours degree in commerce and law from the University of Sydney and a graduate diploma in legal practices. Christian has written and spoken widely on estate planning and financial services law and is a highly respected and sought after speaker at industry events. My favourite part about Christian, I think, was an article that he uh, he wrote not too long ago, um, and that's what has drawn you into him uh, so much more since. But Tony, I know you work closely with Christian, um, and it's it's not just that article the reason that we work with him; it's a lot more. It is, and um, we we first met Christian actually at a licensee professional development day where Christian was a lawyer talking about all the changes in our industry and facia law and, uh, and all the rest of it. And myself and a good friend of mine, uh, Sam Abouid, were the ones who uh, kept throwing qu questions at Christian and he was not phased whatsoever by these intimidating characters. Uh, whilst everyone else was just furious about the changes going on in the industry, we just kept throwing questions and his answers were brilliant. Uh, and I thought, well, this is a guy who could certainly stand in front of a magistrate in any way. Uh, so, but uh, more to the point, he was passionate uh, about our industry and about the protection of our industry and the magnificent work we do for our clients, which is why, for full disclosure, we engage Christian as our own uh, financial planning lawyer uh, for our firm. Even though Christian is Sydney-based, we said, uh, he understands financial services magnificently, and this is a man that we want on our side because he's he's also about protecting the great work that we do for our clients. So, and Christian obviously works uh, hand in hand with our Sydney-based uh, principal Matthew Leach as well. So, Christian, I welcome you to the microphone. Thank you, absolute pleasure, guys, to be here. So, thanks very much for that. Well, I should say that I should I should say the virtual microphone, Christian. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could say I had a, a a real one in front of me, and I I reflect back on that yeah wonderful engagement we had, Tony, at that uh, professional development day that you mentioned. Uh, I think yep. we were both unflinching in our passion. Uh, yes. It's nice to see that that passion continues. Um, yeah, and and my, and my dear friend Sam Happyweed has never been backwards in coming forwards with a question. <laughs> so no. it's uh, and Sam is a wonderful guy and a magnificent advisor. And yeah, so between the passion from the two of us and your passion in return, uh, thus we now engaged you as our lawyer. So thank you for all your support and the support you provide our industry, and thus providing that support to our industry, the support you actually uh, provide to um, our clients. It's an absolute pleasure, Tony, and, and welcome the opportunity to, to re-engage uh, with your clients and with the industry. Yep. So, Christian, I guess let's start out. I, I'd love a bit of background. What drew you to this industry in particular? Um, studying law, I guess, what what was the shift in coming into looking after financial services? Um, and I guess there's more to it, um, but let's start there. So, financial services, from a lawyer's perspective, you really get industries or pieces of work that tick 
all the boxes. And that's from the technical at one end to the commercial, to the practical, to the opportunity to really make a difference in people's lives and to really test the why question around why we've become lawyers in the first place. And the reasons usually are around wanting to make a difference. There's a sense of a cause and social justice. It's also, you know, discharging that need for, you know, technical satisfaction and to really challenge yourself academically and intellectually. And it became evident to me pretty early on that this incredible industry ticked all those boxes. But fundamentally, it was about having the privilege and the opportunity to work with good people to make a difference in people's lives. And you know, whether it's everyday Australians, you know, mums and dads, to you know, SMEs, to big businesses, you know, the, there's been a lot of negative sentiment of late about the financial services industry. And, you know, the Royal Commission has certainly done its bit to, to create those sort of sentiments and misconceptions. But at the same time, it's given us the opportunity to really appreciate and reflect on the role and value that financial advice does provide, particularly to the Australian economy. And, you, you know, you spoke about my paper earlier in defence of financial planners. And, you know, that was one of the key messages that I really wanted to get out. And, you know, notwithstanding all the legislative reform and all the change that's happening that, you know, Tony bombarded me on a few years ago in a professional development session, it's also a, re a salient reminder around, again, the importance that good financial planning plays in our lives, in our economy, in reducing reliance on the public purse, in transforming people's lives, in allowing people to meet, you know, their financial and non-financial goals and objectives. And, you know, it's an absolute privilege to be able to work in this industry every day and, and, and really shape um, the future of professional services. And, and certainly financial planning um, is heading that way and it's really pleasing to see. Christian, I um, give a industry talk and one of the talks is it's basically why accountants, lawyers and financial planners uh, should be all working hand in hand with each other. It's um, it's interesting that, you know, I, I actually find it quite interesting that all the professional services is being the accountants, lawyers and financial planners slash um, advisors who also do insurance as well aren't working hand in hand because sometimes if we we come in and we can put a client in a better financial position by rearranging their affairs whilst they're alive but we might have completely mucked up their estate planning uh, in the event of their passing um, and everyone eventually will pass whether it's just of old age um, or whether it's through unfortunate uh, circumstances and and one of the examples I actually give without going into the entire talk is when my eldest son decided he was going to leave university and go uh, down a different career path, but he was leaving university. He was no longer a financial dependent under uh, CISAC. Now, I had insurance uh, for both my sons attached to my self-managed superannuation fund. And all of a sudden, of course, he was in the event of my death, if I passed away the following day, 
his insurance proceeds from my super fund were all of a sudden taxable and quite a large tax bill of, you know, around about $600,000. So besides the fact that I knew he would turn around and say, I knew you loved my other brother more than me. <laughs> so, <it's>, uh, <laughs> so that is, that aside, and they both work here now. <laughs> so it's, uh, but that, that aside, one of the things was, um, and if, you know, I'm also obviously my own advisor, but one of the things was if, if I rang my insurance advisor on that, because I knew about the CIS Act and the insurance advisor said, well, it's an easy solution so that we take the insurance out of your super fund and put in your personal name and bang, done, easy solution, no tax bill to Josh in the event of my passing. But what it of course has done is gone from having zero assets in my name. If he didn't then refer me to Christian Yazbek uh, to make sure that my testamentary trust was up to date, I've gone from having no personal investments to my name to having a $3 million life insurance policy in my name in the event of my death that all of a sudden is, is exposed and uh, they are potentially exposed to that as well. So this is one of the interesting parts of when you see a financial planner, that financial planner should also be addressing the estate planning needs and what is, what is now going to happen in the event of their death and why they should actually be working in with someone like yourself. And you, you must have a few examples of that as well. Well, you actually raise a, a really key fundamental discussion point in all of this, and I think that gets overlooked at times. So let me put this question to you. Ultimately, what is it that financial planners do every day? It's estate planning, isn't it? Correct, absolutely. It's in a different form, but fundamentally, accountants, lawyers, certainly estates lawyers, and financial planners, ultimately, what we're, we're actually having the same conversation, often without realising, this is estate planning at the end of the day. What is estate planning by definition? You are making sure that appropriate arrangements are in place to meet the financial and non-financial needs of your clients and their loved ones in the event of either death, permanent incapacity or other trigger events. Sounds like a lot like financial planning, doesn't it? And surprise, surprise, that also meets the same definition of estate planning. So to your point, Tony, and, and validly so, we're all working towards the same common objectives. Yeah. And, and that's often overlooked, you know. You talked about your binding nomination or your, your death benefit nomination there. If you think about that, you know, beyond the, the actual document, yes, it's called a binding death benefit nomination. It's actually a will, isn't it? It's a superannuation will. It's a document formally executed which prescribes how assets, in this case superannuation, are distributed on your death. So the day in, day out we are having estate planning and succession conversations, whether it's for our personal needs, whether it's for our business. So the idea, as you rightly put it, of the accountant, the lawyer and the financial planning working together is absolutely critical to make sure that we're all singing from the same you know, hymn sheet, to use that expression. And I think, Christian, just to add to that, our why in business is is always been quite simple. When Jamie joined, he added a little bit towards the end, uh, which is totally relevant, but it's um, it was making sure the right amount of money goes to the right person at the right time, tax effectively. And that's that's what we're doing. We're protecting people's money. 
but making sure it lasts and it, making sure it goes to the right person uh, with as minimal fuss and conflict as possible and that it lasts and that it is set up tax effectively. And we, this is where it does surprise me at times when someone might go to a lawyer, um, obviously not yourself, but somebody might go to a lawyer and that lawyer might have done their property conveyancing in the past and they set up a will but they haven't addressed stuff within their superannuation who the beneficiaries are. They've just said, yep, we'll leave this to the kids because that's what you want. But their kids are young and minors and they haven't spoken about or set up the likes of a testamentary trust uh, to protect the estate for the children, uh, but also to protect the estate from what I call predators. And one of the biggest predators can be the tax office if it's not set up properly, you know, so minus tax, uh, rather than actually having, you know, income distributed from a testamentary trust to a minor, which is obviously far more tax effective. So these are just really simple things of your why and my why is the right amount of money to the right person, you know, at the right time tax effectively. It's pretty quite simple. But then what are the structures we put in place to do that, I suppose, so. And that's where it's important to have the, the stakeholders working together, the clients with the lawyers, with the accountants, with the planners. You know, to your point, you know, having a, a, a will separately done by the conveyancer, to use that example again, you know, which hasn't taken into account you know, some of these financial planning considerations like superannuation. Well, there's a worse scenario than that. And that's when the documents are actually inconsistent with one another, mm. uh, where you're having very different outcomes on superannuation, both through the planner and through the will, because the stakeholders aren't working together and talking together. So, you know, we need to be having, as a, you know, a stakeholder community, if you like, this sort of whole of life or whole of succession conversation. So it's very pleasing, Tony, to, you know, to have you sort of open with those sentiments, because I think that really goes to the crux of, again, the why question. Yeah. So let's let's move into one of my pet loves, as it is yours as well, and that's the SME market. Um, so working with self-employed people, which, you know, I was once a self-employed person 28 years ago, just with me. So I did everything. I, you know, I, well, I still make my own coffees now. I was going to say I make my own coffees. I still do. <laughs> so it's, so it's, uh, but it's... Um, in saying that, I did absolutely everything uh, there was. It was simpler times 28 years ago uh, than what it is now. But of course, uh, the business grew. Uh, we had at one stage 55 people working with us, sold that business, went small again. And then um, because we employed Jamie, we had to be able to afford him. So we had to grow again. <laughs> so, so now we've got a dozen odd people working with us. And of course, Melbourne and Sydney offices. So in saying that, though, obviously my journey as an SME has changed uh, a few times uh, throughout the years. And one of the things I find as SMEs grow is they don't necessarily understand what has been put in place for them as part of a succession by their accountants. And I'm not suggesting their accountants have done the wrong thing. They've done the greatest thing possible to minimize their tax as much as possible legally, of course. So it's, um, so, but on that, you might now have, uh, they, I've, I've had it on numerous occasions where I've actually asked the SME owner, who owns the shares in your business? And they might say, well, I do. 
And I say, well, can, can I see that? And then you find out that they actually have a family trust and the family trust actually owns the shares in the business. They might've now brought on a business partner and their business partner uh, shares in the business are owned by a family trust as well. And the one thing I always find quite surprising is when I ask the question, who is the appointer of your family trust? And the, first of all, 99% of them look at me and say, what's an appointer? Um, and the appointer is basically the person who controls that shareholding because they control that trust in the event of their death. And that, in other words, their surviving business partner, let's say, for example, the three of us are in business together and all of a sudden we're all a one third shareholder in the firm. Uh, we'll pick on Jamie because he's on mute and he can't defend himself. So Jamie passes away <laughs> um, and uh, Jess now owns one third of our business. In regards to shareholders agreements, in regards to buy-sell agreements, this can cause a lot of problems within businesses. Do you have some examples uh, that you might be able to share or even just uh, your comments on that? Yes, yeah, several. And you actually raise a really critical and, and, and important and, and overlooked point in all of this. Um, you know, the businesses that were set up or the small businesses, whether a, a sole practice like yourself at one point, and as you rightly said, everything's done properly. You've got either a family trust or, you know, your, your accountant or lawyer at the time's otherwise done the best thing possible for you based on your limited circumstances at the time, being a, a sole practitioner, and I'm, I'm sure you still make coffee far better than I'm capable of, Tony, so we, that's a, we'll save that conversation for another day. Uh, or even in that broader example we talked about, about the three of us. What this conversation highlights are the unintended consequences that arise when um, we haven't turned our minds as early as possible to the succession arrangements. For the business and when i say succession arrangements particularly when there are key persons involved such as yourself and particularly in circumstances either where the business is heavily reliant on that person and otherwise typically wouldn't be able to function as effectively if at all without that person or in the more classical case where you know business partners whether they be relatives friends you know colleagues associates get together to start a business and share their collective expertise towards a common purpose the unintended consequences that arise if one of those persons is no longer available either because of their incapacity or some other traumatic event and not having thought through the consequences of what might happen for example, if someone else needs to step in who's got no experience or expertise, or you know, there are disputes with those people, but you know, where we don't have the appropriate documents and mechanism mechanisms in place, that is, to be able to dictate what should happen or what our intentions are, and instead leaving it to chance or the natural operation of law. Yeah, it's, um, it is, we, you know, over 28 years and because SMEs and court, large corporates were always my pet love uh, in this industry and still are, um, what we have had, I mean, over the course of 28 years, I think we're at about 45 million now in claims paid, Jamie. Yeah, uh, just slightly over $45 million in claims that have been paid out. 
to the right person at the right time uh, tax effectively. And those claims are all insurance claims. Um, and insurance is not the biggest part of our business either, but they have been insurance claims. We've never had a claim knocked back and we've never had anyone come to us and say, that's too much money. Um, but if I can give one example just recently, and then Christian, you weren't the lawyer involved in this because um, this is a Melbourne-based firm. Um, there was a three-partner firm, which became a two-partner firm. And then uh, one of the, um, and that was the shareholders agreement worked well there. There was no issues with the partner that uh, sold out. Um, in fact, they still work together and refer business to each other. So there was, there was no, the shareholders agreement did work well. There was no uh, angst or employment issues, etc. Then of the two uh, partners that were left, and these were a merger of firms that came together, and then the two partners left, uh, one of them uh, who'd been a client of mine for 10 years and was a dear friend of mine, uh, at the age of 49, um, got, got told, diagnosed with uh, brain cancer, a brain tumour. Had the brain tumour removed, but it was, uh, it was he was told basically that he had 18 months to live at that stage. Um, very traumatic. All claims that we do for clients are traumatic, but this was certainly a very traumatic one because I took it personally. There was no doubt in that. But to quote the surviving business partner, the key person revenue business uh, that got paid out within seven days of his operation, uh, the insurance company was magnificent. Uh, all the insurance companies involved here were actually magnificent. Uh, that claim was paid out and it gave the business the cash flow to be able to hire two new senior people uh, to be able to take this partner's role. Um, so from a financial perspective in the business, it helped the business survive. As part of their buy-sell agreement, they had income protection as well, but their business had to cover the one of the partner's salaries for up to 90 days because that was the waiting period. But the key person money obviously provided the cash flow to be able to provide uh, those three months of wages. And most importantly, uh, the surviving business partner had the funds available upon this partner's passing to be able to pay out uh, his business partner's estate. One of the, which obviously gave total um, financial peace of mind uh, to the estate of the deceased partner. The interesting part of all of this was that um, after, about five months after um, he passed away, um, the estate was uh, tried to be sued by an ex-client of about eight years previously. Um, so having all the protection in place meant there was nothing there to sue. But more importantly, uh, the surviving partner didn't have to go to uh, the wife and say, you know, I'm so sorry that he's passed away, but listen, I can't afford to give you, I can't afford to buy his shares. I don't have the money. In this case, he, he wouldn't have, even though he's, he's quite financially successful, but he had just gone through a divorce. Uh, so he didn't know that he would have also had to have been paying out, obviously, a shareholding. So from that perspective, there was absolutely no disputes and they could mourn the passing um, of the husband, father and business partner 
together without having any financial difficulties whatsoever. To me, that's why we obviously have the insurance, but most importantly on that as well, it's why we actually have the legal agreements in place. The legal agreements were in place to support everything that had actually been done. So you must have a few examples of things that have also potentially gone wrong where you've had to fix up the messes um, as well. That's a successful case, but you've, if you have comment on that, that's fine. But also too, you must have some examples of where things have gone wrong, uh, where you've seen things go wrong. Yeah, Tony, yeah, thanks for sharing that story with us, uh, with me and with... with and that's a multi-million dollar William. business too. We're not talking about a business yeah. worth 200 grand, yeah. No, absolutely. And, uh, no, I appreciate that. And I know, you know, that given the personal connection you had with the deceased, you know, that, you know, we greatly appreciate you sort of having to sort of relive that. But, you know, that case you've just, you know, articulated there, I think, sums up this discussion in a nutshell, doesn't it? Because have a think about, well, let's reflect on all the key elements that you just spoke to there. You spoke to having shareholders agreements and buy-sell agreements, or and, you, know, you summed up at the end, the legal agreements. So it sounded like there in that case, the parties, you know, the business partners were able to agree and define upfront what the succession arrangements should look like in the event of passing. Um, so that allowed those mechanics to kick in and not have a scenario, for example, where if we didn't have those legal agreements in place, you know, the next of kin of the deceased all of a sudden, you know, steps up as a 50-50 shareholder and a potentially a director of that business. Uh, now, if we assume they have little to no knowledge or involvement in that business or industry, you can see already some of the issues that are going to go wrong and, and, and I'll talk to one or two war stories in that regard. Mm. So there's the first key point that you spoke to. The other was around funding, how to fund the buyout of the deceased's interest. And more often than not, and in, particularly in this case, as you just mentioned, if we're talking a multi-million dollar business, um, you know, co-business partners, uh, more often than not, not in the position to be able to just, you know, write a check to, to that amount. So funding becomes especially critical and pre-planning for funding. And that's where the insurance kicks in that you spoke to. And, you know, you, you, you spoke to sort of key person insurance there. And you know, as you well know, there are several insurance options available to facilitate funding. And I think, again, doesn't it, doesn't this just highlight once again, you know, the importance of the lawyers and the planners and the accountants working together? Um, and, the, you know, the financial planner there plays the critical role in um, facilitating the funding mechanism through arranging insurance and so forth. And then you spoke to as well succession generally in the will and the estate about avoiding disputes. So notwithstanding the terrible circumstances and, and losing someone so young, you know, as you rightly said, it allowed the family, it allowed the business to carry on, to focus their energy on mourning his passing and to ensure the viability and continuity of the business without legal disputes, without panic over how the hell are we now going to buy out this shareholder who knows little to nothing about the business but is now a 50-50 owner by sheer virtue of inheritance because we didn't have the legal agreements in place which prescribed otherwise. We've saved probably 
in a case like that, if you know there were real issues at play, and take it from me as an estates lawyer who's seen things go terribly wrong, you know, an equivalent case that I've been involved with, you know, that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in legal fees. And there was only one winner in that, and that's the lawyers. And once we talk about lawyers being the winners, you know something fundamentally has gone wrong or broken down, and you know, I'll be the first to admit that. Um, you know, the lawyer should be there at the start, and the less we see of the lawyer throughout the process, and particularly when things go wrong, that's usually a pretty good sign that we've got the, the foundational pieces right. So, again, I'm yeah, very grateful you shared that personal story, Tony, um, for those reasons, but also just given the salient points that you raised. And I think that case, again, highlights the importance of what we've been talking about. Christian, I will ask you about shareholders um, agreements in a moment as well, because that's uh, overlooked. A lot of people do set up their own companies and then and then sign a shareholders agreement, but never read it or understand actually the content of it uh, because they're all excited about their business uh, rather than having to sign legal documents. Um, the And I think Jamie's sick to death of reading legal documents over the last six months. Oh, yeah. Is that fair to oh, say, yeah. Jamie? Oh, yeah, but I actually have a question about that shareholders agreement um, before you, I guess, dive into it with a shareholders agreement and just for our listeners is that signed when setting up a company um and what happens if there is people that are added to the company at later days is that shareholder agreement always updated or is this something that just can go by the wayside and then all of a sudden you know you might be a director you're a shareholder how, how does that work on that end just before no, we dive great, into it great questions there Jamie. and actually they're they're the key sort of practical questions i actually have with clients on shareholders agreements so in answering those questions, why don't we take a, a step back a fraction? Yeah, let's just sort of understand, you know, conceptually, what is a shareholders agreement? You know, um, yeah, we spoke to buy-sell agreements and you know, superannuation has been an example of a will. What is a shareholders agreement really in practice? Well, really, it's a prenup for your business, isn't it? So let's think about it in that vein. Now, we all know, if if I use the term prenup, we all know exactly what that means. You don't have to be a lawyer or in business to know that it's a, it talks to something you do at the start of your marriage, either early on or before nuptials. And what does it do? It deals with distribution of assets and an arrangement of all your personal and non-personal affairs, you know, custody of children and the like, in the event, essentially when things go wrong. So it's pre-planning for worst case scenarios. That's a prenup, isn't it? I don't think there's any controversy about that explanation. Well, shareholders agreement works much the same way. It's a prenup for the business. It is a document which sets out what happens between business partners, i.e. the shareholders, and hence the shareholders agreement, um, when certain trigger events occur. Now that could be things like if there's death or incapacity with one of the shareholders, and typically with SMEs, as you well know, Tony and Jamie, yeah, the business, you know, the key persons, the directors, the ones driving the business are typically the shareholders as well. So yep. for the purposes of this discussion, let's operate on that basis that, you know, the directors and the shareholders are, are, are one and the same. That is typically the case. So that shareholders agreement will speak to what happens on death. Uh, for example, or, or incapacity or TPD and, and how 
the, the interests are transferred between the business partners to ensure business continuity, or the business partners may agree up front and say, well, you know what, we, I can't do this on my own. This needs the both of us. If something happens to one, well, we need a mechanism to divest and sell this business. Or the bit that's often overlooked in this, what happens if there's a dispute? What happens if there's a fundamental disagreement and the business partners no longer get along? What happens if one of the business partners commits fraud or misconduct? What happens if we now want to expand? This gets to some of your questions, Jamie, around we want to bring in other partners and expand the business. A good shareholders agreement has the flexibility to cater to all of those. So ideally, yes, you'd enter into a shareholders agreement at the start. Uh, that's as in when you first start the business. That's not always the case. And again, good shareholders agreements can be written you know, it might be a year or two years in the venture, and they can be structured around the incumbent shareholders with also having the flexibility to make provision for those who come in. To answer your second question, as and when shareholders sort of come and go, a good shareholders agreement will have what's known as a deed of accession or equivalent, which is basically like a side letter that the incumbent, or sorry, the incoming shareholder will sign and they agree to be bound by the terms of that main document so you're not having to re-execute and revisit and refresh and renegotiate the agreement each and every time. Yep. So okay. if you think about it like a, a, a prenup, and, and, and when's the best time to engage in a prenup? When you're in the middle of separation or, or there's a dispute, good luck with that. Uh, best, the best, in my experience, the best legal agreements, the best shareholders agreements have all been done from the outset when the relationship is rosy, everything's going well, there's plenty of goodwill, there's plenty of you know, back slaps and handshakes and high fives going on. That's precisely the time to be having these open and objective conversations. It's interesting, uh, Christian, that it's a proven fact that 100% of divorces are actually caused by marriage. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, so jamie when are you getting married again you and jess <laughs> it's, uh, so it's uh you hold on actually more importantly <laughs> more importantly jamie when am i doing your estate planning yeah it definitely needs to be addressed at some point soon <laughs> so it's um but it, it is it is really interesting that you actually raise that as well and the shareholders agreement and this is probably going back about i would nearly be I'd have to be nearly 20 years ago now, but I had, I was actually referred by an accountant I worked with to a, um, a client. She was a widow and her husband was in partnership uh, with two other people and they had a successful business and they had their shareholders agreement in place. It spoke about, you know, in the event of death, transferring shares and things like that. And what was interesting is that she, the first question she asked was her husband passed away and her husband had always said that the business is worth at least, let's say for round numbers, $3 million. Um, so she went to the surviving directors and shareholders and said, uh, this was a month after his passing. Uh, and I think this is going back 20 odd years, but they were doing distributions of about, uh, you know, $200,000 um, 
um, or about 240, so about $20,000 a month, uh, each month into each of the director's trusts. Uh, so it was a successful business. Um, and they were doing those distributions. And she went back a month after burying her husband and said, how come the $20,000 wasn't paid? And the, the surviving director said, well, that was his salary for the work he does. He's no longer, he's no longer here, so he doesn't get, so we're not paying out his salary anymore. We can't afford to pay you $20,000 a month because you're not doing his work. And then she said, well, on that basis, then you know, I, I won't keep the shares. Uh, just give me a million dollars in respect to what my business is worth. And of course, they turned around and said, you know, well, the business is only worth 200 grand or 300 grand or something like that. So it was a probably an 18 month uh, absolute mess. And, you know, as you said, the legal fees, even back 20 years ago, were, were pushing up around about the $100,000 mark in respect to this business. And the business in the end, um, nearly went out of business, having to settle all this up and all the disputes up. So they had a shareholders agreement in place, which they signed when the business was worth $1. You know, they all put in their 50 bucks each, whatever it was. And you know, 10 years later, uh, the business is very successful. So I think that's an example of when people have shareholders agreement, they think they've got that and they think they're protected and it's signed and things like that, but it hasn't actually been addressed or a whole lot of the issues in there haven't been addressed properly. So how do you raise those issues with their directors and with their spouses at the time of going through all of this? Yeah, and that a really good um, case study there and, and, and case in point, Tony, because surprise, surprise, the uh, you know the de deceased's family who's going to be paid out that share will think the business is worth three million. Surprise, surprise! The incoming purchaser will say it's worth two hundred thousand. That's 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 reality. That's that's uh, that's why humans work. Um, there's nothing of itself wrong or sinister about that. You know, different parties will have their different bases for the way the business should be valued. And I think therein lies the education piece, doesn't it? It's getting an agreed basis for how this business is to be valued. And going back to my earlier point, the earlier we're having these discussions when the relationship is good, when there's a common purpose behind the venture of the business, and therefore when both sides are in a position to think objectively about the future as opposed to in the moment, when either a dispute has already occurred or we're dealing with the tragedy of death or, or, or incapacity. So a good shareholders agreement provides the basis on and the mechanism around how the business will be valued. Now that can be a combination or one of several options. The business, depending on the business partners and depending on what stage of the business cycle we're in. So to your point, if we're early on in the piece and you know, we don't know what this thing's gonna look like in 10 years, and we don't know how this thing's gonna be valued or what it might look like, we may have in our shareholders agreement something as simple as an agreement on who uh, an independent valuer might be or the criteria for selecting an external independent valuer to come in and value the business, and that's perfectly acceptable. It puts it in the third party's hands. We've agreed up front on the basis for that expert's appointment, and there are plenty of very good um, independent valuers out there. 
we may decide we want to go a step further and take two such independent valuations and, and average the two. Or depending on the individuals and if there's a little bit more sophistication, particularly from a financial perspective, you know, we may be in a position where we can agree on the basis for evaluation and the methodology and the formula. So, you know, that may look at things like, you know, agreeing on what multiple of earnings or multiple of profit, you know, how goodwill is valued, you know, do we calculate valuation on a gross asset, net asset position? Do we look at it in terms of profit? Do we look at it in terms of um, distributions that are being paid, return on investment? There are several options available to us around how we will value the business for succession purposes. Um, but again, it goes back to the key point, doesn't it, is agreeing on that basis up front because good luck trying to do so um, in the event of death or when there's a dispute or when we're a partner wants out or we're otherwise trying to move on a partner because of you know, fraud or misconduct. And, and, this is, and this helps with, I guess, an example of a business. Let's just use easy numbers. Say you have a 30-year-old, a 50-year-old and someone who's 65 going on retirement. Um, they're all shareholders. Now, they're all at different stages of their life. Um, let's even strip the, the 30-year-old back a few years if we have to or something like that. But, you know, that 65-year-old, he's like, I don't want to be in the business for two more years. Um, and, you know, insurance is going to be hard to come by for funding, but that's where the shareholders agreement can say, this is how this person will be paid out in the event of succession for those shares. Um, and if an event's to happen, this is how we're going to fund it. Um, how, how does that work? You've sort of got people in different stages of their life. Yeah, yeah. really good, really good point, Jamie. And, and insurance is not always available Correct. because of personal circumstances or particularly with a if you're taking insurance over the business, like a, a shareholder's protection insurance, for instance, you know, over a business that's in its infancy, uh, yeah, that, that's a, that's often difficult to obtain. And we're also uh, hoping, and we're also hoping in that shareholders' agreement that it's always a positive. It's buying out of the business, and not, uh, you know, it's succession. It's not someone passing away, and, and the shares need to be transferred there. Exactly, and that's why, going back to Tony's point, that shareholders' agreements have been overlooked. The beauty of it is done properly, it regulates the entire relationship and all conceivable options, not just death or incapacity. And, and a, and a buy-sell agreement, as important as they are, uh, often is limited to those cases. So depending on the business in question, depending on its infancy and, and, and the continuity objectives of the parties, it often lends itself to, is a buy-sell agreement sufficient? And in several cases it might be or do we need to think about the relationship more broadly and that's where the shareholders agreement kicks in addressing your point as well you know that will often or it should rather you know separate to or in addition to insurance look at other funding mechanisms that may look at things like you know paying you know buying out the partner in installments over time um, you know we may have a, a scenario where the estate, you know, over a say a two, three, four or five year period is able to fund, um, sorry, not the estate, the purchaser is able to fund um, the estate's interest. Uh, and, you know, having a mechanism where we agree on a funding mechanism over a period of time in instalments and so forth is also equally important. So yeah, you have the really good point around, it's not just the question of is funding available, but the how 
that's, yeah, that's and, really and I th- and I think it's important as we say to always have a in writing because you know the, the thing you find with business owners and as you say they come together as friends and it's oh yeah this is what we'll do when you're leaving and this is what we'll do when you're leaving and, and it can become you know a difference of opinions and things like that especially as a business evolves if it grows um, you know who's getting the upper hand on which side so I think that's where the shareholder agreement and that becomes really important to say this is what we've agreed upon and this is where we're going in the future. Correct. And it is extraordinary, uh, and, and probably no surprise either, the correlation between the strength of the relationship, you know, mates, you know, over a beer who conceived this business idea and you know, create a business plan over a handshake, the correlation between that and the absence of legal documents. It is yep. extraordinary. Yep. Uh, and unfortunately, though, that, you know, and that's not the, you know, the opportunistic or cynical lawyer coming out, but that is a recipe for disaster. Christian, I'll back you up on that because that example <laughs> I, that example I actually gave of 20 years ago, yeah. the three of them involved were all very close friends. Two of them were actually childhood friends um, as well from primary school all the way through. Very successful, did work together uh, for a number of years. Um, all three families holidayed together. Um, you had godfathers and godmothers of each other's kids. Uh, we're talking, it were, and as I said, a very successful business and everything was going wonderfully well until the uh, spouse of the deceased partner said, can I have some money? And that's when it, and there was no, as I said, the agreements were just very basic and there was nothing really in place and it was just legal fees over legal fees. And she would have just been happy to start with continually getting her $20,000 a month. Um, and retaining the shares. But what she didn't understand was no, that, that it was an income distribution. It wasn't a distribution of profit as per her shareholding. And she had no idea what all that meant anyway at that time. So that's an example of great friends who everything only fell to crap uh, when one passed away and money was involved. Yeah, an, an unfortunate but salient example. And that's an innocuous request has triggered a, a tsunami and it's through no one's fault other than, you know, the vicissitudes of life, i.e. someone's passing. It's not as if there was otherwise a dispute or a disagreement amongst business partners. It was otherwise an, an amicable friendship and relationship even up to death. Uh, but something so innocuous in the grand scheme of things has unfortunately you know, triggered that series of events. Yeah, a good example. Yep. So on that, uh, Christian, we you uh, work with, as I said, our principal up there in Sydney with Matt. Uh, you do um, you do specialise in uh, commercial law, being for all these work with SMEs. You do specialise in those shareholders agreements, and like the comments that I made to Lisa Fitzgerald from Lander Rogers in regards to protecting IP and IT. Um, a couple of weeks ago, realistically paying um, a smaller amount of money to get you involved from the start can save having to pay out hundreds of thousands of dollars down the track in the event of disputes. Is that is that fair? I think that sums up really well, Tony. Yep. yep. And from our perspective, we're obviously very comfortable in knowing that the work you do and working with our clients is exceptional. And we know that if something does happen to them, and hopefully that's just retirements and they're selling their business for $50 million, but if something does happen to them, that it's the right amount of money to the right person at the right time tax effectively with your help. Well said, and I think it goes back to, doesn't it, 
you get the right stakeholders working together for a common purpose and a common sort of goal and interest uh, of the client, it's only going to be a win-win. It's going to satisfy our clients because they, they know that all component parts of the broader estate planning and whole of life and business succession process uh, are coming together for those common goals and objectives. So no, I, I applaud the work um, you do and, and continue to do. Gentlemen, thank you very much today. Um, I, I find it a very interesting topic. Uh, you know, we've been involved in plenty of these and, and I've seen the real life work that happens um, and the results. So again, I thank you for your time um, and I'm sure our listeners will love it. Pleasure again, uh, it's all mine and uh, yeah, really welcome the opportunity and uh, look forward to doing this again soon. Thanks, thanks.